0: We are concluding chapter 2 of 1 Peter this morning, and uh, next week we will be starting chapter 3, a great and rather extensive series on marriage, so you might want to invite your friends, relatives, and neighbors for that, okay? We're talking about Jesus... And last week we began to look at him as the suffering Jesus. I want to continue that this morning as we study these last couple of verses in this chapter. Peter has told us, because of all that God has done, that he has spelled out for us in the first chapter and a half of this letter, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, he begins then to spell out to us our responsibilities, our duties as believers, because of what God has done. Peter tells us, in essence, that we now have a responsibility, we now have a duty to live the kind of life that manifests Jesus Christ in the midst of an ungodly culture. That's our call is to manifest Jesus Christ, live our lives in such a way that people see Jesus. Not that we just talk about him, not that we just say we're Christians, but that we live our life in such a way as to manifest Jesus Christ in the midst of a dying world and and a, and a godless culture. All of us have come out of that godless culture. All of us have been saved. All of us, God has has called us out, and He has saved us. He has given us a new life. And He's sending us back into that world, back into that culture from whence He has brought us, so that we may be a light to those who are yet still perishing. But he He means for Jesus to be seen through us. Let me remind you of a passage we looked at last week, if you want to turn there and read it with me, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, this is the Apostle Paul and he's describing his life and his ministry in this very theme of living in such a way as to reveal Christ. He says, we are hard pressed on every side. I mean, make no mistake about it, the Christian life is the most difficult life you'll ever live. It is the most challenging and most demanding. You say, well, you sure don't make it sound very inviting. Well, when you understand what's at the end, it's more than inviting. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, he says, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And here's the verse, verse 10. He says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, so that Jesus may be seen. His life. People know that He's alive. People know that there is hope. He's not just another religious leader that people talk about. He's the risen, living Lord, and He is literally, visibly seen in us. By how, beloved... We live our life, and in the process of Peter unfolding to us the elements of our Christian conduct, he's come to speak about Jesus at at the end of this chapter. He starts up in verse eleven, and he he addresses this issue of our Christian conduct, basically in five major arenas. He first he says we are we are aliens and strangers in this world. We live now in a hostile environment. We're not loved in this world. We're not warmly received. And when you begin to step out, and many of you understand what I'm talking about, you begin to step out and and begin to manifest the truth. Live it out. Not in a super spiritual way, not in a self-righteous way, but genuinely begin to minister and try to reach out to people. You become a threat to the status quo. Jesus was, and we're going to be also. And so there's going to be hostility. So we are aliens and strangers now in this world. We used to be part of it. But there's going to be opposition. There's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be persecution and rejection. He says it comes not only from the world, but also, he says, from our own own lives, our own bodies. He says, uh, and abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So we get opposition from the world, we get opposition from our own, our own human nature, fallen, sinful still. And these desires wage war against our soul, and so we, we are to still live through that a godly life. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And that'd be glorious. The people come, say, It's all true. It's all true. And they praise God because they have come along with us. He says, And submit to the governing authorities, every governing authority established among men for the Lord's sake. And these people in that first century, remember, they were being persecuted. There was official government persecution. Official government persecution of Christians. They were made to be the scapegoats for every problem, every wrong, every ill in that Roman society. And yet Peter says, submit, submit to those authorities. Live your life in such a way that you silence the critics. So you get opposition uh, from the world. You get opposition from your own flesh. You get opposition from the government. He says, and some of you have masters that are, that are mean-spirited and cruel and scolios. He says, submit to them also. And remember, most of, the, most of the early church was composed of slaves. And the temptation was, now I'm free in Christ. I'm going to be free of this master. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of this uh, slavery situation. And yet Peter says, no, submit. He says, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are scolios, to those who are harsh. So at every point, in every every life arena, if you will, in that culture, and then by extension to us, this call, this, this obligation to live godly lives, And in that context, as he he calls us to this kind of conduct that's going to manifest Christ, even in the most difficult, arduous kind of circumstance, he says, and look at Jesus. He's the model that we follow. He's our model. Look with me at verse 20. He says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? many of those slaves would receive severe beatings. And he says, if you you get a beating and you deserve it, that's not to your credit. There's nothing virtuous in that. He says, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this finds favor with God. This is commendable before God. If you suffer for doing good, for doing what's right, well, I was only doing what's right. Why did they get mad at me? Why did they? Beloved, you're going to suffer for doing good. The world does not believe what we believe. The, the world does not have what we have. And if you remember when you were in the world, when, when, when Christians were witness to you, you didn't exactly lovingly embrace them, did you? I didn't. And now I are one. Now notice this in verse 21. He says, to this you were what? Called. Called. We're called to this. We're called to this life. We're called to a life of being willing to do what's good, to do what's right, to do what's honorable, and knowing that we are going to suffer for it. We're called to this. God means for us to willingly surrender to this process, willingly embrace this stuff. I don't know about you, but suffering in, in trials and, and especially for trying to be a good guy, you know, it's not my favorite thing. But I'm called to it. We're called to this kind of life." And he says, "Look at this. He says, "Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps." When you don't know what to do, look at, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. What, what would Jesus do? Does that sound familiar? And then he characterizes Jesus in verse 22 in terms of being, being without flaw, without sin, perfect. He says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. We said last week that the first place that sin evidences itself is where? It's in the mouth, the tongue. Jesus never sinned by act, he never sinned by word. Never by deed, never by his tongue. And in fact, Peter says, when they hurled their insults at him, I'd like to have insults hurled at you. What What is your natural impulse when people start hurling their abuse and their insults at you to say, oh, thank you very much? God bless you. What's our natural impulse? Hurl them back, right. Hurl them right back. Well, your mother wears combat boots too. No, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not, what? Retaliate. When he suffered, he, what? He made no threats. Boy, he could make some threats, couldn't he, if he wanted to? One word from his mouth. One word of threat. When he suffered, he made no threats. How could he do that? How could he possibly do that? Peter gives us a secret, doesn't he? What's the secret? He what? He kept entrusting himself to whom? to his Father who judges justly. He knew, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, it wasn't, God, are you there? Do you know know what's going on? Help. He knew who had everything under control. He knew whom he trusted. He knew who was faithful. He knew who would judge righteously. He knew who would vindicate him. God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. I'll even all the score up. You just do what I say. You trust me. You trust me. You trust me. Okay, I trust me to you. You keep me. Remember we said entrust something means to to give somebody. I trust myself to you. You keep me. You keep me. You have to do that every day, don't you? Several times. Several times an hour sometimes. Right? You keep me. You keep me. You keep me. Verse 24, he, he himself bore our sins on his body in, the bo- in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, in those verses... Peter points out Jesus, and he points Him out as the suffering Jesus. And Jesus is suffering in three different ways, or three different arenas, if you will. And Peter wants us to consider Him first as our standard, or as our example. So he says in verse 21, He's our example. We should follow in His steps. Consider Him. So when you suffer unjustly, that you Follow his example. And secondly, that he is as our substitute in verse 24. We're going to look at that. Jesus suffered as our substitute. And thirdly, in verse 25, he suffered as our shepherd. So I want us to explore those areas. And as we do, I want us to consider something very important. Our worship of the Lord... Is extensive, really, it is a is a life expression, isn't it? But in terms of our our coming to grips with it and our embracing worship, I want to suggest to you that at the very heart of our worship of God, at the very heart of our worship is the very, very beautiful, marvelous observance of the Lord's table and I say that for a reason and if you follow my logic you I think you'll agree with me it's there that we take the bread and the cup it's there that we remember Jesus and what he has done it's there that we remember him that he's coming again it's there that we recommit ourselves in our fellowship with him So may I suggest to you that the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, is at the very heart of Christian worship. But then at the the, the heart of the Lord's table is probably the most significant doctrine. And that is the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the Christian gospel. That's the heart of the Lord's table. So at the heart of our worship, then, is the Lord's table. At the heart of the Lord's table is that very, very, very significant doctrine of His substitutionary death. Jesus summed it up with these words in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. You remember these words. This is my body given for you. Do you see the theme of substitution there? And we celebrate that. We rehearse that in our communion service, don't we? We take communion as a congregation, and we remember Christ. But what do we remember? We're remembering His substitution for us. The essence of the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ has done something for us. He has done something for us, and that something is that He has died for us. He has died for us. His death was for us, and that is exactly what Peter wants us to realize. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for you. It was for us that he suffered, and again, that is Peter's point. And in three ways, again, we look at the suffering of Jesus Christ. In three ways. First, Again, as our example, or our standard, if I can use that word. He suffered for us as our example, as our standard. For how we, ourselves, uh, will suffer under unjust treatment. Christ suffered for us. We are to suffer. We're going to suffer. We should suffer like He did, patiently, enduringly, in the midst of especially unjust treatment. That is so hard to do. I want to justify myself. I want to give reasons. I want to defend myself. I want to do everything that comes natural to me. And yet Peter says, no, no, no. I want to point you to Christ, the suffering Christ. He suffered as your example. You suffer the way he did. Was Jesus Christ treated more unjustly than any person ever? And that's particularly underscored because he was a perfect person. He didn't deserve one bit of what he suffered. All of the powers of hell was massed against him. All that the power of hell could incite from humanity massed against him. And he didn't retaliate. You ordered no threats. Amazing. You and I will never, never know the suffering that Jesus underwent, the extent of his suffering. How many of us have said, I can't handle another minute of this? I've had it. Hello, ding dong. Light go on? How should we respond? Lord, you suffered incredibly more than I did. You're my example. I'm going to suffer patiently, enduringly, even under this unjust treatment. At least my perception is unjust. But see how quickly the temptation is. I can't handle this. I, I, I'm, I can't go another moment. Can't go another day. You say, "Well, but, but you know, we just have to acknowledge what's real. You follow. You start down that track, and you're not coming back." You start down that track, you're not coming back. You just put a guard on your mouth, shut your mouth, and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You entrust yourself to Him. He's our example. And, beloved, if you are a Christian, and you are serious about your faith, and you're serious about manifesting Jesus Christ in this world, that others might know Him, you're going to risk, you're going to risk, You're going to risk being mocked, laughed at, abused, chased, stoned. That's what we're called to. Now I want to move on to the second of our three points. This is in verse 24. There is a greater way that he suffered for us. Not only as our example, not only as our standard, he suffered for us as our substitute. Verse 24 speaks of Christ as that, as the one who took our place. And again, this is the heart, very heart of the Christian gospel. The great doctrine of substitution that is basic to our faith. Every other doctrine hangs on that doctrine. All the other great doctrines surround the doctrine of substitution. Without the doctrine of substitution, you have no other doctrine Everything is dependent upon that. Every other element of salvation surrounds this great core truth. Because why? Redemption is substitutionary. Redemption is substitutionary. Write that down. Redemption is substitutionary. It means that Christ paid a price, paid the price that you and I could never pay. The wages of sin is what? Death. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree is the day you die. And that death wasn't just physical death, that death is eternal separation. You and I would have to pay that price forever and ever and ever and ever. But to be free from it, we could never, of our own efforts, abilities, talents, works, satisfy the demand for God's justice. Beloved, we could not pay the price. Jesus paid the price, and he paid it in our place, and we go free. I love it. We go free. When I was a kid, I hung around with a bunch of friends in our neighborhood. and there were, We had there six, six of us, and we were all good friends, good buds, and, and we always went places together. You know, that, Those were the days you could take off all day Saturday and, and ride your bike all over the whole South Bay, and your parents never knew where you were and didn't matter. Now you don't let them out of your yard, kids, right? And it was always fun because we could go down to, uh, in those days, the old Redondo, I don't know, how many of you grew up here? Remember the old Redondo Triangle down there and the bowling alley years ago where all that's gone now? We used to go down there and bowl down there and, and uh, it was always fun because we'd line up and, and it was a joke amongst us that the last guy had to pay. So we say, He's paying. We get in free, he's paying, with the old Redondo Fox movie theater down there. He's paying. He can get in the movie for a quarter. A quarter. Now some of you probably remember even earlier than that, you can get in for less than that. <laughs> some of you I said. <laughs> not many, not many. We, we have some elders, but not really that elder. What's the point? Somebody paid so I could get in free. Christ paid the price, so now I get in free. I get in heaven free. I got a free ticket. Christ paid the price. Here's my substitute. Isn't that glorious? How many have heard the term justification, the theological term justification? I want you to understand how justification relates to substitution, how critical substitution is. Justification really interprets, if you will, our salvation judicially. Justification interprets our salvation judicially. And as the New Testament sees it, Christ took our legal liability. We are, because of what Christ has done, because He was our substitute, He took our legal liability upon himself. You see, there could be no justification if there were not substitution. You see how that's a core doctrine? That's the heart of the Christian gospel, substitution. The doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation, that means basically just the making of two people to be at one by taking away the cause of the hostility. What separated those two people? you take away that, there can be reconciliation. And in this case, the cause of our separation, the cause of hostility between man and God is what? Sin. And Jesus removed that cause for us. Peter says that he bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And so Jesus himself removed the cause for hostility. Now there could be reconciliation. Jesus, because he was our substitute, took our sins upon himself. Now there can be reconciliation between us and God. You and I could not deal with sin. Jesus could, and he did. And he did in such a way as that now we could have a reconciled relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with God unless sin is dealt with. I used to blithely go along thinking, oh, you know, I believe in God, I believe in God, you know, God likes me, and someone up, you know, some, the guy up there likes me, that kind of stuff, you know. I used to think that God graded on the curve until I read the Bible. Bibles, no, God doesn't grade on the curve. He demands absolute perfection. I'm, I'm lost. I'm hell bound. I have no hope. I was desperate. You, never, you don't know how desperate you are until you begin to pick up this book and read it. Propitiation. There's another great, I love that word, Propitiate. When I was in seminary, I discovered that word, propitiation. I used to like to say it, propitiation. <laughs> say, what in the world is propitiation? That has to do with the wrath of God. That has to do with the wrath of God. That points us to the removal of God's wrath. And Christ has done this by bearing God's wrath for us. As our substitute, there can be propitiation. There can be the removal of the wrath of God. Beloved, your sin and my sin drew down God's wrath. But Christ bore it. For us, There was a price to be paid, was there not? Who paid it? Jesus paid it. That's what the Bible tells us. There was a victory to be won, and who won it? Jesus won it, the Bible tells us. There was a penalty to be borne, and who bore the penalty? Jesus bore the penalty. And there was judgment to be faced... And who faced the judgment? And He did it, who? For us. He did it for us. He was our substitute. He suffered not only as our example, He suffered not only as our standard, He suffered as our substitute. So whether you're talking about redemption, or justification, or propitiation, or reconciliation, or covering, whether you're talking about the removal of sin and transgression, All of these are corollaries, if you will, to the one great truth of substitution, that Christ took our place on the cross. My, 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 when the impact of that hits you, when that begins to catch hold of your mind, your heart, your life, you'll never be the same. You will never be the same. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, Paul says basically the same thing that Peter says that it's substitution that it's at the heart of the Christian gospel. Speaking of Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He was our substitute. Paul says the same thing. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see that substitutionary theme again in those verses. Love it, if Christ is not my substitute, then I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If He is not my substitute, then I still occupy that place of the condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him and he doesn't take them, then they remain with me. They go nowhere else. They remain with me. If he did not deal with my sins, then I must deal with them. If he did not bear my penalty, then I must bear it. Think about that. There is no other possibility. It's either him or me. It's either him or me. Either He paid the penalty for my sin, or I will pay it forever and ever in hell. You say, forever and ever? Why is it forever and ever? Why is it eternal? Because I've sinned against an eternally holy God. An infinitely holy God. Whose law is infinitely holy and perfect. And hence, then, my punishment is infinite. It'll never be perfect. That's why it's going to be infinite. That's why it's going to be ongoing forever and ever and ever and ever. That's too horrible to think of, isn't it? Forever and ever and ever. Never, ever seeing another person. Never hearing another voice. Never, ever seeing anything. It's it's the, the bottomless pit. It's the worm that gnaws at you and gnaws at you and gnaws at you. It's the fire that can never be quenched. It's eternal hell. You say, how horrible. You have to understand how horrible sin is. We dismiss it. We say, oh, it's just a white lie. It's just a little impure thought. No, we diminish sin. We diminish it, and we diminish its effect. And hence, we think hell is so undeserved, it's so horrible. No one should ever deserve that, you don't understand sin. You don't understand the holiness of God. And once you begin to understand those things, then you begin to embrace the cross. You begin to see Jesus. Oh, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. is substitution for us. And Jesus, beloved, by the way, was not just a martyr. The world makes him out to be a martyr. Someone who died for a good cause. That's what a martyr is. Do you remember the old, uh, the old musical uh, that was put on years ago uh, in the 60s, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Does remember that? See, this is, the, this is the, the Jesus Christ superstar mentality, the martyr mentality, that Jesus was a martyr who lived for a good cause and set a great example. Oh, he set such a great example of how to be so sold out to a cause that you're willing to even die for that cause. No. Difference. There's a difference here. Jesus was not just a martyr. A martyr can be a good example of suffering, huh? But beloved, a martyr can't be a substitute. A martyr can't be a substitute. It's a huge difference here. The world wants to point him, point him out as a as someone who who lived and died for a great cause. No, he lived and died not for a cause, but for us. As our substitute. A martyr cannot take away my sins. Only Jesus can. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter again alludes to, speaks of this substitutionary death. He says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Even saying those words, it it causes me to to recall, wait a minute, unrighteous, don't talk to me about, I'm not unrighteous. Yes, you are unrighteous. There's nothing righteous about us. We resist that. We fight that. We say, no. But that's the truth. The righteous for the unrighteous. Beloved, Jesus was our substitute, plain and simple. He bore our sins in His own body on the cross through the crucifixion, and that was the plan. That was the plan. It wasn't just some curious circumstance that kind of worked out in time and space and history. That was the plan. Look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Speaks of Him as being slain from the creation of the world. That was the plan. God had ordered it. Jesus embraced it. Before God ever created any of us. The creation of the world. You say, why? Why does he do this? Why did he do that? Well, Peter tells us. Why did Jesus bear our sins on the cross? So that what? What does Peter say? you got to see this. So that we could go to heaven? Is that what Peter says? Help me. Come on. Did he say that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on that tree so that we could know love? We could know joy. We could know peace. And live for righteousness. He did it. Primarily to transform us. He did it primarily to transform us from sinners into saints. He did it to change us, to regenerate us. He took our place to bring about a very real transformation in us. Are you different? That's the question you want to ask. Am I different? Has there been a change? Has there been a transformation? Am I growing more and more into the image of Christ? Did something happen when I made that profession of faith? See, that's the test. That's a real test. People say, Oh, oh I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm saved. Or, Pastor, can I lose my salvation? And all these questions. And I say, Wait a minute. What's the test? Are you different? Are you persevering? Are you growing? He died for us. He was our substitute so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. That word die that Peter uses by the way is a unique word. It's used in no place else. It's the only place this is the only place in the Bible it's used. Paul doesn't use it. Only Peter uses it. Interesting word. And it's, it means basically to be away from, or to depart, or to cease existing. Now stay with me. The purpose of the substitutionary work of Christ is that we might depart from sin. Or that we may, be, we may cease existing to sin. And we might, what? Live for sin. Righteousness. That we might enter into a whole new life pattern. A whole new life, whole new way of living. Whole new way of living. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about this very same theme in Romans chapter 6. Paul talking about about grace and the grace of God. If you back up in chapter 5, he says, and where sin increased, grace increased more. Well, Paul's enemies, the legalists of his day, don't comprehend really what he's saying. And so they misinterpret and they say, well, Paul, Paul, what you're saying, if you're saying we're sinning, gra- increase grace, increase more. If we want more of God's grace, we should what? Sin more. And his response in chapter 6, verse 1 is, no. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Heck No. May it never be. And he says these four words. Look at these four words. Next words, he says, "We died to sin. We died to it. See so how did we die to it through the body of Christ? When Jesus died on that cross, we died with Him." Somehow, miraculously, in that spiritual realm, we were buried with Him through baptism into death in order that we might be raised with Him, Paul says, to live a new life. I died to sin. What exactly does that mean? I died to sin. You departed from it. It it ceased to exist in terms of of its effect in your life. Let me give you an example. I use this in my class, and those of you who have been through my class, you've heard me talk about this. Picture a dead man. Picture a dead man. We're going to prop a dead man up against a wall and prop his eyes open. And then we're going to parade in front of him all of the Miss Universe beauty contestants. Question What effect are all those beautiful young women going to have on that guy? What? No effect. Why? He's dead! You died to sin. Do you see? What does that mean? Sin has no effect on you. It has no power over you anymore. You're not subject to its penalty anymore. Hallelujah. You died to it. How? By being a good person? No. How did you die to it? Through identifying with Christ and his death on the cross. Through believing in Jesus because he bore his, your sins on himself on that tree. You died to it. Now sin is still present, right? still present in our human nature. Go over to chapter 7. Paul says, why don't I do what I want to do? Why can't I do what I want to do? And, and he says, it's sin still living in me. Sin, nothing good lives in my sinful nature, my sarkonos, my flesh. So while we've died to sin in terms of its power and its penalty, we still not yet have fully died to it in terms of its presence. We still have to contend with it. That's why Paul says, don't submit the members of your body any longer to sin. Don't let it reign in your life anymore. You don't have to. It's not on the throne anymore. You can say no now. Isn't that glorious? You can now live for righteousness. You've been set free. Because Jesus was our substitute. Because Jesus was our substitute. There's a real change. There's a real change happens. If you're a Christian, really. And then look at the next phrase in uh, in this verse, verse 24. Peter alludes to Isaiah 53, 5. Look at Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. What does Peter say, the next phrase, in verse 24, the last part? He says, by what? By his, what? Wounds. Wounds. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you know that word wounds, translated here in the English and the plural, is actually in the singular in the Greek? If you look up up the, the word in the Greek, it's actually singular. It's wound. But the translators make it plural. Greek word is molops, and I think it's it's a reference one to if you go back to Genesis chapter three verse fifteen, when God pronounced the curse on the serpent, and then spoke of the of the conflict between the serpent and one who would come, identified by the pronoun he. God says, "He will crush your head. You will." bruise his heel. I thought, oh, there's that word again, bruise. Literally, the word in the Greek that Peter uses, as I said, is the singular word, and it is literally bruise. By his bruise. Now, from another perspective, you can look through Peter's eyes. Peter sees Jesus. And you've got to know that Jesus' body was, had to be horribly, horribly beaten and misshapen. Tortured. racked. It's just horrible. And I think that through Peter's eyes, that's why he uses this word, singular. He didn't focus on the many wounds and bruises. Rather, he saw Jesus as one massive wound. One massive bruise. By all of it, you've been healed. How have we been healed? How have we been healed? Have we been healed totally, perfectly, in every way? Have we? Let's have a vote. How many say that we've been healed totally, perfectly, in every way? Raise your hand. How many say, no, we haven't been healed totally, perfectly in every way? A lot of you aren't voting. <laughs> Look at it. he says, you have been what? Healed. You have been healed. That's a perfect tense. You have been healed. Perfect tense. How have we been healed? Spiritually. Spiritually. You've been healed spiritually, beloved. You've been healed totally, perfectly, spiritually. You've been healed spiritually. The cross, understand, from the context, when you understand the cross, the cross was purely a judicial matter. It had to do with satisfying the demand for God's justice. It was a judicial matter. In the great law court of the universe, the judge offers mercy on the basis of justice satisfied at the cross. You say, but what about... I I hear... I hear about all physical healing, that, that I, should, I should claim my healing because by his wounds I've been healed and, and that there's healing in the atonement. What about that? What about the physical part? Well, I, I don't believe that the, the matter of bodily sickness is necessarily addressed in this passage. I don't think that that's what Peter's talking about. I don't think that's what Isaiah was addressing necessarily. Not in the short run, certainly. Healing in the atonement in the full and perfect sense happens when we go into eternity with our glorification. There is healing in the atonement. But I think it's future. I think it's not yet. We live in the already and the not yet. Have you ever heard that expression? We're, we're kind of in, in between right now. There is healing in the atonement. By his wounds we have been healed. We've been healed spiritually. And by his wounds we will be healed physically, totally, perfectly because the day will come when there will be no more physical pain, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more backaches, no more headaches, no more grief. Yeah, but what about Jesus? Didn't didn't Jesus go about healing people? And, and look at Matthew chapter eight, Matthew chapter eight, verses sixteen and seventeen. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now notice, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now Matthew quotes from the same passage in Isaiah that Peter quotes from. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now the, the context there is obviously what? Physical healing and delivering from demons and so forth, which would lead you to believe that there is clearly healing in the atonement. There is healing in the atonement. You say, well, what was Jesus doing there? I believe that he was showing as an example to all those people what all of us will experience one day. What we will all experience totally in the glory to come, healing from all physical disease. But physical disease is not the issue that Peter's talking about in verse 24. If you understand the context, There is physical healing in the atonement, it's promised, it's not yet realized. Beloved, listen, if physical healing were in the atonement for the here and now, guess what? Not any single Christian would ever be what? Sick or die. We wouldn't be sick. You say, yeah, but you have to have faith. There are tons of people who stand on that verse and say, by his wounds, I have been healed, and claim a healing, claim a healing, and still die of cancer. Amen. And it's a crime to say that those people don't have faith. Amen. They misinterpret the, the, the passage. And there are teachers who teach that that way, and I think it's wrong. Jesus promised us healing in the atonement, but that is yet future. So our Lord suffered, Our Lord suffered. He suffered as our standard to show us the pattern of virtuous suffering in the midst of unjust treatment. And He suffered as our substitute. Beloved, it's so basic. He took our place. He took our place. Incomprehensible when you think about it. Here's the perfect Son of God, the beautiful Son of God, no sin, untainted, and yet willingly taking on in his body my sin, my punishment, willingly doing it. Unimaginable. And yet that's the truth. And finally, in verse 25, Peter says, not only is our standard, not only is our substitute, he is our shepherd. For you were like sheep going astray. That reference to sheep going astray really is a reference to our unsaved condition in the past. We're just unsaved. We're out there wandering around. If you know anything about sheep, they just wander away. Duh. <laughs> There's a book by Philip Keller. If you haven't read it, you ought to get it and read it. Uh, a Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. It gives you tremendous insight to those stupid animals. (laughs) The Lord had to do what he did if he was to be our shepherd. He had to do that. Because why? We were continually straying. We were in this unsaved condition. If he had not provided a substitute, he couldn't have saved us. Again, Peter is thinking of Isaiah 53 6 as he writes that verse. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because of this, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We came to our senses. There is a shepherd. There is a shepherd who brought us back. Because he gave his life for us. He gave his life for us. And he turned us. Notice, he turned us. We have returned to a religion. What have we returned to? We return to a person. We haven't returned to a religion. We haven't returned to a system, to a theology, but to a person. Christianity is a personal relationship with a living God. We've returned to a person, and who it is? Who is it that we have turned towards? The Good Shepherd. How does John describe Jesus in his gospel in chapter ten, verse eleven? He says, "I am the what? Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd lays His life down for the sheep." Beloved, you and I couldn't come into the fold unless He would be our substitute, unless He would suffer for us, unless He would suffer as our Shepherd. He laid his life down for us. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He causes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He's my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Peter says in chapter 5, verse 4, that he is what? The chief shepherd. And back in Psalm 23 it says, the Lord is my shepherd. What does that tell us about Jesus? He is the Lord. There's a testimony right there of the deity of Christ. He's the shepherd. He is the Lord. Jesus. The term shepherd is basically his title. The term overseer used in that verse, verse 25, is his function. And what is the function of a shepherd? To watch over and to guard the sheep. He watches over us. He guards us. That's the essence of Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd who who gave his life for us and who watches over us, who guards us. Peter says that in chapter 1, doesn't he? He leads us, and he brings us to himself. So in all of that, as we, in the effort to exemplify Christ in a lost world, we are to look to Jesus. We are to look to the suffering Jesus as our example, as our substitute, and as our shepherd. Amen. Lord, thank you again. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for your spirit. Lord, cause these things to be burned into our hearts and minds and souls. Jesus, you willingly suffered. You took our sins upon yourself on that cross. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment, if you would. I don't want to let this time pass by, but there may be one or two or three people, maybe more. You've come this morning, and maybe you don't have assurance of your salvation. Maybe for the very first time you've understood the difference between being religious and and truly being saved, born again. The Bible says that God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son, that if you would believe in Him, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. Jesus said, I came that you should have life and have it to the full. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. You've heard this morning that you are a sinner. I don't say that to be pejorative in any sense of that word, I don't say it to be um, rude. That's the truth. That's what we have to deal with. We're sinners. We fall short. God's standard is perfection. We, by nature, are imperfect. We can't meet his standard. We are sinners. And God's, God's decree is that sin must be punished. Now, the question is, am I going to bear that punishment for all eternity, or am I, am I going to trust Christ to bear it for me? He's already done it. He died for sin once for all. The question is, will you receive that gift today? Will you take that step and say, Jesus, I need to be saved. I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to suffer forever and ever and ever for my sin. There's no need to, because you already bore it for me I want to be able to die to sin and live for righteousness I want to live a new life if that speaks to your heart if that's where you are and you want absolutely to know that that's the truth of you maybe you've never made a profession of faith maybe you have but you've been back and forth back and forth back and forth we can settle it this morning. I want to pray a short prayer. Just a prayer of commitment. A prayer of acknowledgement. A prayer of commitment. And if God is speaking to your heart today and you're convicted, you're saying, you know, I, 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 need, to get, I need to do this. Then I'm going to invite you to let me pray with you. I don't want to just pray by myself up here. I, I want to know if there's some people that want to pray, want to make this commitment to Jesus Christ. You want to be set free from sin so that you can live now righteously. If that's you, while everybody's heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, you signal me just by lifting your hand. Right now, go. Anybody? Okay, good. I see your hand. See your hand way back there? See your hand there? Okay. Back there in the back row? Okay. Lift your hand high so I can see it. I see your hand. God bless you. Anybody else? Lift your hand now. We'll just take a couple seconds. Okay, I see the hand way back there. Okay, God bless you. Anybody else? There's still a couple seconds. Don't delay. If you know, if God was speaking to you today, and you're saying, oh man, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. God's talking to you. Today is the day of salvation. One last call. One last time. Anybody else? Don't delay. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to do something. If you lifted your hand and you were serious, and I presume you were, the Bible says, Jesus' own words, he says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. We don't want him to be ashamed of us. We want to make our commitment sure. You're going to have to go out in this world. You're going to have to 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 make your commitment sure. People are going to have to see that you're a Christian. You're going to have to take a stand for Jesus. Jesus. And there's no better place to start than right here in the church. So I'm going to ask you, if you lifted your hand and you were serious about it, I want you to stand. Right now. Go. Stand. Don't wait. Okay. Stand up. Good. All right? Now, last thing I'm going to ask you to do is one more thing. I want you to lift your hands with me. Maybe you've never done this. Both hands. I want you to lift your hands up to heaven. Just just stretch them out. Don't... Come on, this is is an act of surrender. Get those hands up in the air. Way up. All right. I want you to pray this prayer. Make it your prayer. God, forgive me. I confess that I'm a sinner. Lord, I've never seen myself this way. I've denied it. I've pretended. But down deep inside, I know that I've been wrong. I've violated your laws. I've been guilty guilty of offending you. I ask you to forgive me. I've heard this morning that Jesus Christ was my substitute. That he died on that cross for me. Took all my sins upon himself. He bore my guilt and he bore your wrath for me. Lord, I want to be free. I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I want a new life. I want to go to heaven. I want to see you. I want to live for righteousness. So I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me of all my sin based on what Jesus has done. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died. I believe he was buried. I believe that he rose again from the dead after three days to bring new life, and I received that new life this morning by faith. Make me a new creation, God. I give you thanks, and fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might live my life for your glory every single day until I see you face to face, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Welcome to the family. (laughs) We're going to give you a little packet, by the way, a little packet, and in that packet there's some information for you, be very, very helpful for you in terms of next steps for you. On the front of that packet is a card. If you could just take a moment fill that card out, leave it on the seat. The ushers will come pick it up later. Let's stand. Let's sing to our God before we dismiss.